0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for making yourself known to us and we thank you for making ourselves known to ourselves, <laughs> making us known to ourselves. Um we'd be utterly lost without your condescension to us, your willingness to to be known by us, your desire to be known by us. And so We're greatly encouraged by that. And um, we thank you for your word that we can hear it and and learn of you and learn of ourselves. We thank you most of all for uh, your son, Jesus Christ, who in the ultimate act of condescension came to us. Um, We thank you that in him we have love and in him we have grace. And I pray, Father, that you would would fill our, our hearts and our imaginations, our souls, with an understanding of your love and your grace that has been poured out on us in Jesus Christ, that we might live for you alone in this world. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would begin that imagination and that, um, that recollection of your work on our behalf through Christ in this moment. That as we look at your word, we would um, be animated and filled with hope and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you were with us last week, um, we took a break from Lamentations. Shano Rorangi came out from uh, the Kirk in Tulsa, and uh, we, we revisited the Transfiguration after having to to uh, to delay that due to weather. And so it was a wonderful time to hear from our brother Shano Um, and we hope to have him back sometime in the future, but uh, we will return to Lamentations this morning. Uh, We are are moving on to Lamentations chapter 2. And as we come to Lamentations 2, we discover that there's a shift in focus from the first chapter. Lamentations 1, if you will remember, was written in order to induce pity for the city of Jerusalem after that holy city fell into the ruthless hands of the Babylonians. It made you feel sorry for the city by personifying Jerusalem as this weeping woman. Right? She was in about as worst po- the worst possible uh, condition that a woman in the ancient world could be. She was childless, she was widowed, she was abandoned by the lovers she turned to for solace, she was enslaved, and she hated even herself. The first verse opens with, How, lo- how lonely sits the city. That was full of people. And immediately you pity her. But the second chapter is not so much interested in inducing pity as it is in assigning blame and investigating the cause of her condition. Why is she in such a state? What happened to her? Who has done this to her? And the answer that chapter 2 gives is that God has done this to her. Yes, the Babylonians were the ones who did the actual destruction and destroying and pillaging, but they did so at God's direction and with His blessing even. Chapter 1 only mentions once God's responsibility for the humiliation that Jerusalem suffered, but chapter 2 makes His involvement explicit from the first verse. And the first verse alone begins and ends with the mention that God is angry. His pitiless judgment on this pitiable woman is the focus of chapter 2. And in chapter 2 we see God not merely withdrawing from Jerusalem so that she's left at the mercy of the invading Babylonians, but, but God is actively pursuing her destruction. Adele Berlin, in her commentary on Lamentations, writes that in chapter 2 the city is, a, is intentionally and methodically being unbuilt. It's as if God is erasing Jerusalem from the map. And this observation captures well the behavior of God as it is described in chapter 2. God is actively undoing his former kindnesses to Jerusalem. He's reversing his blessing. And this is expressed in many ways throughout the chapter, but a perfect example of God's change in affection towards Jerusalem is the absence of her festivals. Several times throughout the year, hundreds, hundreds of people would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate some religious festival. The temple was the only place that you could offer sacrifices, and it was the place where God could be found. And so people desiring to worship God would have to make the journey to Jerusalem and the city would swell in number during these festivals. The sounds of singing and rejoicing could be heard in the streets. Festivals were joyous occasions, the pride of Jerusalem. But God denied her that joy when he punished her for her sin. Verse 6 says that the Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. Already in chapter 1, we heard about the streets mourning because no one walked on them anymore. There were no festivals anymore. All the people were gone. The city was lonely. But in his anger, mere deprivation was insufficient to satisfy him. God escorted, instead, God escorted hundreds of people to Jerusalem as he would have during a festival. And you could hear shouting in the streets. But the people who filled the streets were not pilgrims, but pillagers, and the shouts were cries of terror. Verse 7 reads, He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord, as on the day of a festival. Similarly in verse 22, You summoned, as if to a festival day, my terrors on every side. One scholar comments that the enemy, having gained access to the temple, engaged in boisterous celebration of the kind normally associated in Israel with the day of an appointed feast. God has enabled Israel's enemies to engage in a parody of this worship in the very temple itself. The sounds that once induced smiles now made their blood run cold. His punishment of Jerusalem does not take the mere form of absence in Lamentations too, but an active pursuit of her in order to insult her, to cause her pain, to punish her. And this reversal in God's favor is illustrated also in the way Lamentations adopts the language of the Exodus, but changes it slightly so that signs of God's former favor in the Exodus are now signs of his anger. In the first verse, the verse that begins and ends with the mention that God is angry, we're told that in his anger, God set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. As scholars observe, God's contact with Israel through the medium of a cloud is usually something positive. Here it is negative. In the Exodus, when Israel was running from their lives for, for their lives from the pursuing Egyptians, they ran into a sea. And found themselves trapped with Pharaoh and his army on one side and the sea on the other, stretching as far as their eye could see. But God had a plan. He had split the sea in two so that His people could walk across the 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 sea bed as if on dry land. And in order to buy them time, He produced a cloud. That he set between his people and the advancing Egyptians so that they became disoriented and unable to advance any farther and God's people escaped. The cloud provided cover. It was the means of their salvation. And that same cloud then led them through the desert as they made their way to the land that God promised to them. By day it brought them shade from the brutal desert sun. And it was an enduring sign of God's favor and his presence. And once they entered the land and they were established there, they built a temple for God. Even though all of heaven and earth could not contain him, yet he was willing to take up residence in the house which they built for him. And how did he signal his occupancy in that space? Why, with a cloud, of course. He filled up the temple with a cloud so thick That one woman could not see her neighbor standing right next to her. The cloud meant that God was moving in. It was a sign of his favor and of his presence. But in Lamentations 2, God uses a cloud to show his absence and even worse, his opposition to his people. This was not a benevolent cloud, but a dark cloud with flashes of lightning in it. And it was all the more terrifying precisely because... Clouds were formerly a sign of blessing. The blessing is, is gone now. And it's, in its place is, is terror and judgment. He did the same with fire. In the Exodus, fire was like the cloud, a sign of God's presence and favor. The cloud lent shade and led them by the day. A pillar of fire lent them by the night. or Led them by the night and, and lent them heat in the cold desert nights. It illuminated their camp all through the night as a reminder that even in the darkest of places He would be present. But in Lamentations too, God has become, as he is described in verse three, a flaming fire consuming all around. What was formerly a sign of God's blessing is now an instrument of his judgment. These reversals and lamentations are, are painful signs of God's opposition to his own people because of their sin. And there are many more. Too many for us to catalog in a sermon. But they all testify to this new reality that the, the presence of God, which was once a comfort, which was once hopeful, had become something to fear because he was angry with them for their many sins. He pursued them no longer with blessing in his hand, but now with vengeance. And before you check out, because He would never want to believe in, let alone worship, a God who could be so angry. Let me ask you a simple question. Why not? (laughs) You would think that after watching a, a police officer kill a man by pressing his knee into his neck for almost nine minutes, we'd appreciate God's anger over watching his creatures harm themselves and one another and the rest of his good creation. After a year of calling for God's justice or for justice, you would think that a God who gets angry about injustice would be attractive. Would you prefer a God who simply looked the other way? Now that would be a terrible God. God's anger is an expression of His love for creation. Only a truly loving God gets angry. Our problem is not, therefore, that God gets angry per se, but that He gets angry with us and that he gets angry with us for doing things that we don't necessarily think are all that bad. We don't want a God who dictates the terms of life. We want a God who therapeutically supports us in whatever we do. We want to determine the conditions of our own happiness and all we want God to do is to lend his approval. We want each and every one of us to be gods ourselves. We don't actually mind the idea of an angry God because we're angry too. We just want to, be able to, we want to be able to determine what God's allowed to be angry about. We only want God to be angry about the things that make us mad. And so we perpetuate in our insistence in being God's who determine right and wrong. We perpetuate a, a power struggle within humanity in which only the strongest and the loudest will win. And it's nothing new. It's a very dynamic. We've been grieving in our country this past year. You know, we might swap out the people in power, but we'll never have justice. So long as we insist on being gods, we will always have a system in which justice is elusive and we protect our fragile positions by kneeling on the neck of another human being. True justice is only possible when men and women kneel side by side in humble submission to our common creator who has every right in the world to be angry with us for our many sins. Verse 14 condemns the prophets for failing to be honest about the sins of Jerusalem. And so she went merrily on her way until the affections of God were altered so drastically that she was crushed under his judgment. Let us not listen to the prophets of our age who bless our sin, who rationalize it and baptize it as something beautiful. Let's humbly admit, we have sinned grievously and often. We deserve, like Jerusalem, for God to pursue us without pity. In our sin, the presence of God should be a a fearful thing instead of a comfort. Jerusalem is pictured in verse 15, and her fall was great on account of her sin. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? She suffers under God's judgment, and the people mock her as she suffers, hissing and wagging their heads. She is the picture of what we deserve. But God is not a God of justice alone. He is also a God of love. And about 600 years after the fall of Jerusalem, these same mocking words, this same hissing and wagging of heads could again be heard in the city of Jerusalem. This time, they were spoken about a single man dying alone on a cross. Verse tw- Matthew 27 relays the scene. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. The same words which were spoken over Jerusalem as she suffered for her sins under the judgment of God were spoken over the Son of God as he was crucified 600 years later in the city of Jerusalem. Was it because he had sinned as Jerusalem had before him? No, he was the only man... Who had ever lived a sinless life dying on the cross in order to spare sinners the justice of God and to fulfill God's love? On the cross, God was pursuing his own son, not with blessing in his hand, but with vengeance in order to crush him for our sin. His former kindnesses and affections were turned to coldness and hatred that day. Jesus cried out, and God replied with silence. And the son was undone by the estrangement he experienced from his own father. He did this, not because he hated his son, but because he loved us. And the death of his own son would be the only way to have us. In Jesus Christ, the love and the justice of God meet. And we sinners are the beneficiaries of his death. He took Jerusalem's place and he took our place. He died for our sins so that we might be forgiven even though we continue to foolishly sin day after day. But for our sin, we have nothing to fear in Jesus. Because in him we see just how much we are loved. The son of God would rather die than let us meet the same fate of Jerusalem. In Jesus we are forgiven and in him we are loved. And the presence of God is no longer a fearful thing but a comfort in the darkest of time. Jesus sent his spirit to live with us always so that Though this world is difficult and we will experience sorrow and grief, yet we need not be given over to despair. For the, Spirit of God, for the Spirit of God assures us of His love and His guarantee that having made us His own, He will come for us again when He comes to make all things new. And until that day we can sing with joy these words of Paul, In all things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure... I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.